Hello and welcome to the Squeaky Bum Time Podcast presented exclusively on the Chop Sports channel of the Premier Streaming Network. We are recording this on Monday, April 17th. I am your host, Laurent Cortines. In this episode, we just saw a Liverpool romp at Ellen Road versus Leeds. Chelsea get deserbied by Brighton and Holland breaks another record. But first, oh my God. Arsenal drop a deuce again. Arsenal dropping uh, another two-goal lead versus West Ham in this week's fixtures. But first, just some notes. Please like, share, subscribe the show. It means everything to us. We need you to be part of the show. We need you to follow along. We need you to... Spread the word about the Squeaky Bum Time podcast. We love you. We need you. If you want to be in the WhatsApp group, please let me know in the comments, and I will send you a note so you can join us with our regular occurrences. Okay, let's get to the show. So, Arsenal, drop points for the second week in a row, this time versus West Ham. Um, I know that narrative is bottling it. I know that... Everything says that Arsenal are losing. I know that everyone says poor Bakary Sako has felt nervous, but I don't really buy the nervous narrative. Uh, and I'll tell you why. A team could not possibly be nervous and play the way that Arsenal played the last um, two weeks in the first half hour of both those games. In Liverpool, I saw a dominant team. I saw a team that had a plan. I saw a team that could bop it around and score and put the ball in the net versus one of the most decorated teams of the last five or six years in Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool. And in in the, um, in the West Ham game, I think the world thought that West Ham were completely, utterly, and totally cooked. Nobody saw that performance coming from West Ham at, uh, before the penalty. Nobody saw any of those things. So Arsenal, if they're guilty of anything, it is a level of complacency and not really understanding how big the moment is. In fact, it's the other way around. They're not nervous. They don't think it's squeaky bum time. They think it's still mid-season. And in fact, I'd argue they need to start feeling nerves and they need to start acting as though they're in the running against a super blue machine of death that is coming for them to destroy them. Because don't get me wrong, Manchester City are coming for your red gunner asses. The citizens, this is no sweat off our back. We will come and get you, says the City fan. But uh, I do want to talk about this game because it was fascinating. Um, Arsenal come into the London Stadium, and as a City fan, there's something about the London Stadium for a team that plays and bops the the ball around. The pitch seems gigantic. The racing track around it, because it's from the games, seems like there's just no background, and you can pop the ball around. And And Arsenal did that in the first half, To the point that I was watching this game, I turned it off. I turned it off because I was like, oh, man, I like to watch. I've got a schadenfreude 
in me. I like to see if Arsenal are going to blow it. And then I didn't really realize that they did indeed blow it. And I had to check back in for the second half. <laughs> but um, yeah, this game, and just to give you a sense of how lopsided it was in those first um, few minutes, I've just got to track down my trusty machine of doom here, uh, the old FB ref. Just in the first 30 minutes here, it's all Arsenal. They score two goals, one on seven and one on 10. They're up two in the first 10 minutes of the game. And then they just kind of sit back and relax until they get a penalty from um, from Gabriel, who just inexplicably dives in when his team is cruising. And this is after Thomas Partey is fucking around with the ball. Declan Rice closes him down, knocks it off him. God love Declan Rice. He does play so hard. He never gives up. He's probably overrated, but that doesn't mean he's not good. Like, players who are overrated are still really, really fucking good. It's just that they have a little bit of an outsized feeling on their team. Then that penalty that Saeed Banrama puts in, we have a game that's 2-1 going into the break. No harm, no foul. And it's just one of these things. But from then on, West Ham take it to Arsenal, especially in the second half. Uh, Antonio has a really good shot uh, that's saved uh, from his head. And it doesn't feel like... uh, And then Arsenal do pick it back up, second half, and they get a penalty drawn. Um, That's a clear penalty. It's a handball by Antonio. I mean, we can go through a whole discussion on handball another day. There's a whole offseason. I think the penalty does not justify the crime half the time, but that's okay. So Bakary Saka, who is Arsenal's star boy, they keep using that term. He famously made it through his penalty miss in the Euros. He steps up and he hits it high and through, just straight, straight through. And he misses, doesn't hit the target, doesn't force Fabianski into a save, just fires it past the goal. Um, and from there, two minutes later, on a really just lumped ball, high in the air, that just gets kicked back in. Uh, they don't close their lines properly. They don't mark Jared Bowen. Jared Bowen on the volley, pops it in, 2-2. Two, two. And there it really stayed, and there wasn't much to do about it. But I think what's interesting, what I really found so fascinating about this game was the the metal of West Ham. I thought David Moyes was in trouble. I thought, you know, all the things about West Ham that have been troublesome, they Thursday, Sunday, they don't play, they bought all these players, all that stuff. And David Moyes is just like, fuck this. I'm Scottish. I'm from Dunfermline. I don't care. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to hoof it into the box. We're going to do long throw-ins. We're just going to keep playing our game, which is fighting, which is muscle, which is size, which is everything that Arsenal doesn't want to do. This was a game from, you know, from the 80s. This was balls into the box, winning second balls, muscling guys out of way. This was for Antonio to run the channels. And I think what 
what West Ham capitalized on was Arsenal's inability, especially with Rob Holding back there. Sorry, I love you, Rob Holding, in your hairpiece. You just don't clear balls into touch because you're and, and out of play and into the and into corners because you're doing what West Ham want. What they don't want you to do is take the ball down, have some composure, and play. Rob Holding can't do that. Gabriel can't do that. It's Saliba who's the player who does that. And every single time, and I don't think that Holding or 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 Gabriel were particularly bad. It's just they weren't composed and understanding of what the opponent wanted to do. So by kicking the ball and kicking it into touch, they just continued the pressure that um that that West Ham wanted to play on. If you remember famously uh, when Moyes was with United, um, Rio Ferdinand famously revealed, in addition to complaining about their not being allowed to eat chips, a.k.a. French fries, um, he revealed that Moyes had a number of crosses and throw-ins that he wanted to gain per game. He was very meticulous about, this is how we play. We get 30 throw-ins a game, set pieces. And, and that was actually anathema to United. But for West Ham, that worked. And we saw a fighting, troublesome West Ham. Kurt Zuma clearing everything away. Everything was headed out and away. Uh, Mikel Antonio just bodying everyone until Cornet came on late. Um, Arsenal did seem to recognize that they had a playing problem because they stopped playing. They stopped attacking. Uh, they brought on Trossard for Partey and Jorginho for Jesus. Probably was actually the other way around. Um, and tried to just control the game um, with the ball, but they were unable to do that. So some of their principles that Arsenal have played with all season went out the window. But, but, but the doom and gloom for Arsenal, I think, is inaccurate. Think of it this way. What if this draw was the Bournemouth game that they won 3-2? What if, the, and they had won, and they won this game, and the Bournemouth was a draw, which it should have been. What if the Aston Villa game that they were going to lose uh, became the Liverpool game? So if you start putting it together in that context, ultimately, it's going to come down to a week from Wednesday in the Etihad. Arsenal now cannot lose. A draw keeps them in decent shape, means they'll have a one-point lead when City uh, get their game in hand done, finally. And that's, it's still in their hands. They still have to get a result at Anfield. I mean, at, at the Etihad. So it doesn't really change their narrative. Now, if they win on Friday against Southampton, where they have a weird schedule, they have to go to Southampton. Not going to be easy, but Southampton are really cooked at this point. And then win at the Etihad, they're fine. Ultimately, this result does not change the fact that they have to go to the Etihad and get a result. It ruins some of their point of error, uh, margin for error. But that's what this whole season was for. You knew squeaky bum time would come. You knew the run-in would come. You knew that this City game would be important. You gained all those points so that you could sustain this dip, this troublesome time, and do it. I think the issue is, narrative-wise... 
two times in a row, two games in a row. You went up to for Arsenal. You were playing great, and the tide turned. The tide turned. So the results became these two draws that looked like pain. Um, I think Arsenal fans could rationalize Liverpool away, but they could not rationalize West Ham uh, as a result, even though they were both the same general narrative of the game. At Anfield, they got Anfield. We talked about that while I was in Palm Springs, how you know the whole ethos of the city being behind the team. But in the West Ham game, it's a little bit different. This is a relegation fight. But in this case, you got moised. Um, as bad as Moyes has as a top six um, skill, uh, top six results, his teams have a way to play. They have a character. They have a thing. And they're asking you to play them off the park to beat them. And Arsenal did that, but then stopped doing it. Then gave them a lifeline in their penalty by Gabriel. And from there, it became a Glaswegian street fight, a Scottish fight to the death, uh, a ski and do in your heart, kilts, bagpipes, and a war. This was Jacobites versus uh, Longshanks. This was serious shit. And West Ham came and said, we are not going to lose this game. We're going to scratch, fight, claw, and go to the wall to get these points. And they did. And Arsenal have to find that inside them. I don't begrudge them this result. They still, Like I said, it's just math. They still have to go to the Etihad and get a result. But they are wobbling. They just have to find that inner resolve and say to themselves, we've played great. We're good enough. We've been good enough. We've been the best team in the country for most of this season. We've withstood Gabrielle being out. We've withstood that wobble in the middle of the season and the the first loss to City at our pitch. And now they need to dust themselves off and go, we go again. We go again. And they can do it. They can do it. They can do it. This is a good Arsenal team. They can do it. The question is, will they? And so we don't know. What we know, and we'll transition now uh, to Manchester City, is that Manchester City are a ruthless machine of destruction, force, and evil. Uh, I don't care. I'll play the heel. City are evil. They go get a hold of Leicester City and beat them like a rented goalie. Um faster and dispatch them more quickly than you would expect. They scored three goals in 25 minutes. Bing, bang, boom. Stones on an amazing outside-the-box shot. It's his first shot on target from outside the box. Now, granted, he is playing midfield now. We all love John Stones. This is an amazing season for him to see him there. Then um, a handball, again, Indeedy. Lester just simply make mistakes every week, and it seems to be Indeedy. If there are any Leicester fans out there, can you tell me why he still plays? I guess there are no other options. It's good to see Tielemans back. This is, again, Dean Smith's first game. Holland put it away. Really nice for City fans to have a penalty taker who wants to take them. And then De Bruyne struggling through the midfield. Um, really a nice drawn-in, deserby ball kind of 
draw it in, narrow, then pop around the corner, create a transition moment into De Bruyne. He fights off a tackle. Erling Holland sees the run, takes off, and puts it away. City up 3-0 in 25 minutes, and it was over. Um, City's game was over. Um, nothing else happened in the first half, especially. But then in the second half, especially after uh, Grealish and the boys all come off on 68, uh, there are two changes at halftime. Stones and Holland come off for Alvarez and Nikanji. And then Phillips and Cole Palmer come on on 62. And that, and then Grealish comes off on 68. Those changes really disjointed City. And Leicester did get back into it. I don't begrudge them. They did get a goal from Hinacho on a shot uh, that was blocked, uh, that, that was saved and then put through. Uh, and the XG story, just for Manny, is that Leicester win this game. It's another case of XG not being great. They did hit the post, but you never got the feeling that City were in trouble in this game. Uh, I don't feel like as I watch this game that um, that City were in trouble and were going to lose. They just killed the game off, got their three goals, and then kept their powder dry for the game on Tuesday against... Um, Bayern Munich, which is where their head's at. So, yes, Leicester put up a good fight in the second half. Dean Smith, new coach of Leicester, can take that and go, okay, we got that one. We got those. That happened. And he can spin it how he wants. And you can spin it how you want, Manny, uh, that that City were lucky not to not to lose this game. I think it had, had it gone to 3-2, then we would have had some panic stations. But, you know, nothing really happened there. And City just cruised and keep the pressure on Arsenal. City now are on 10 wins in a row in all competitions. They are starting to rev the engines. We're seeing that moment that Arsenal, that Liverpool fans know about, that the rest of the league know about. It's slid in time. It, it, it's been, this narrative has been that it's been in the winter or whatever. Whatever it is, there is a period in the season when City turn on the Jets and get their groove back. I don't know what the timing was specifically for this season. Uh, there was a long period of the season where City hadn't won more than two or three games in a row, but now it's on 10. Just to give you a sense of their last 10, 4-1 against Bournemouth, 3-0 against Bristol, that's the FA Cup, 2-0 against United, 1-0 against Palace away where we dominated, then that 7-0 against Leipzig, 6-0 versus Burnley in the FA Cup, 4-1 Liverpool, 4-1 Southampton, 3-0 against Bayern, and now 3. So scoring you know, almost 4, I can't do the math fast enough, feels like about four and a half, five goal, four, about 4 goals a game over the last 10. Just an incredible amount of goalage that everyone should be worried about, and I think rightly so. Uh, I think the funny thing is, with City is, you know, every time we win, it's expected. Every time anything happens with City, it's all expected. This is how it should always be. Being a part of it and being a fan who watches all of their games, it doesn't feel that way. Um, there's always periods of struggle. There's always periods of change. The Cancelo change, the changing of the back four, the incorporation of John Stone's. This stepping into midfield double pivot change, there's there's just been trouble and work and items that happen 
And like um, John and Manny have said on the show, if you want to be part of the WhatsApp group, they're just, it's Pep. We're all just waiting for him to leave. He's such a good coach. He finds challenges. He finds the newness. He changes the way City plays. So there's no complacency. In fact, he makes the team uncomfortable and is willing to sacrifice some of the fluidity at earlier points in the season to find a new fluidity, to find a new identity, to find a new way to play that disrupts the team in the season and changes it. As much disruption as there has been during this season with the World Cup, Pep has found it again to do something new, to, to fuff about, to, to have Bernardo Silva at left back, to move Cancelo in way, to have Rico Lewis have his moment in the team. But now it's settled in. It's the four defenders at the back with, you know, it, it's it's moving Laporte out. It's it's about finding Grealish, getting him to be where he needs to be because he has a specific need for him to do that he wants to try. And then adding Holland and incorporating his runs and getting the team to feel good about what he's doing. And now we're seeing City and it feels inedible, inevitable and it felt easy, but it's not. It's work and City put in the work. And that's why I'm so proud of this team. It's great to follow City. It's different. I know as a non-fan, you don't see it. You just see a machine of doom and death. But if you go through it week after week, you sort of know what work has gone in and what has happened. Like, you know, these losses against Tottenham and losing against United 2-1 and, and dropping in the EFL Cup against Southampton and losing to Brentford inexplicably. And even in this season, losing away at Liverpool, unable to score a goal or the or the draw against Southampton to to save fucking Steven Gerrard's job way back when. These are all these moments that just, you know, are blips that City have now put the, the season together and are now moving forward in a way that just has them clicking and moving. And it's starting to feel like we're inevitable. It's one of the verbs, action words that that a lot of city fans or people who follow city regular, we get into this inevitable mode. Yeah. We're down a goal. It's inevitable. We're going to score two. Yeah. It's nil, nil it's coming on 70. It's inevitable. Kevin De Bruyne will find a goal. We get this inevitable feeling about us. We're rolling. We're rolling. We're rolling. We're rolling. And a week from Sunday, Arsenal better be ready because we'll fucking stomp them. <laughs> um, we move on to the, uh, our other friends, um, in the Premier League and talk about Chelsea. I think it's a good transition to go from City to Brighton and Chelsea and Lampard because in this game, and I think Lampard is in a lot of trouble, even as an interim manager. When I say that Brighton wiped the floor with Chelsea, it was not close. It was not a contest. There was nothing coming from Chelsea that said they were going to win the game. Did they get a goal? Yes. Are they at home? Yes. Do they have all these players that are names or famous or have YouTube clip videos or whatever? Yes. But here's what they don't have. They don't have a structure. They don't have trust. They don't have an organization. They don't have leadership that knows what they're doing. And they don't have a coach who can galvanize the team as an us against the world. Frank Lampard may be a legend and he was signed as a PR move. It's a catastrophe. He cannot coach at this level. He cannot coach 
against someone like Deserby, who has his team playing at a level that is changing the Premier League in terms of influencing Pep, influencing other teams, trying to work out what are they doing. And Brighton deservedly got the win in this game from a couple of one specifically great goal from, uh, is it Enciso from Paraguay? What an incredible player. Uh, Julian Cesar Enciso on 69. Um, Connor, by the way, Chelsea were up in this game on, on a Connor Gallagher goal from uh, a great run by Mudrick. Mudrick looked good in the first 15 minutes and then fucking vanished. Um, and um, even with Veltman and Evan Ferguson, who again was fantastic, if you don't know the name Evan Ferguson, get to know him. He may be the next great striker in this league. He's a 19, 18-year-old Irishman playing striker for this team. He did do his ankle, I think it looked like, uh, but he had incredible chances in this game. Links up play. This Brighton team is what you want your team to be. This Brighton team, how it plays, how its structure is, from Tony Bloom down to directors of football, down to scouting networks, down to pricing, down to on-the-pitch play, down to players improving. Everything about Brighton is what I think Chelsea wanted to be. And they tried to buy with Brighton. But I think what we're finding out is that it's not the individuals. It's the institution of Brighton. It comes from the top and Tony Bloom and his metrics-driven, gambler-centric, data-driven network. Same way that Brighton is. Two of the best-run clubs in the Premier League are Brighton and Brentford. And it's not a coincidence that they are heavily data-driven, emotion-removed, smart teams that get things done and are selling clubs. They find players around the world of football. Right now, Brighton have a pipeline to the lesser South American countries. So they've been mining Paraguay, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, uh, Venezuela versus Argentina, Brazil. The way transfers work is absurd. They don't, it, you can find players before. Matoma was found for two and a half million pounds. I mean, that's a crazy number. He's incredible. Every time the ball went out to the wing with him, Chelsea were screwed. Uh, did they have the right player out there? Probably not. But, you know, Trevor Chalaba is a professional. He was, he's a defender. He's out there on his own trying to guard Matoma. Uh, Solly March was sort of on off the boil right now, uh, but, you know, it came down to McAllister and Enciso and Caicedo. This team is just incredible. Please, please, please. Just watch Brighton. Just watch them. They came out with, a, with force and a mission after they got fucked in the Spurs game, and they took it to Chelsea. Um, I can't tell you how good Brighton are. You have to experience them. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, Chelsea are just, just let this season end. They need it to end. Uh, and they need to announce their new coach. I feel very good that it will be Nagelsmann. I think a lot of the backroom staff that uh, Bowley has been hiring, take that with a grain of salt, has been from the Red Bull tree. Um, you know, a corporate company that is running multiple business lines of business uh, set up by by Rangnick, 
Uh, now, granted, he didn't do great, but at least there was a structure and a plan in place. So that's the Hasenhutl, the Marsh, the uh, Nagelsmann path through Red Bull Salzburg, through Red Bull Leipzig. Um, and that's a corporate entity. And they've sort of pulled their resources and done the best they can trying to create um, a club and a system to sort of identify players and move them through. Remember, Holland came through the Salzburg-Leipzig uh, process. Was he at Salzburg and then went to Borussia? I think that's what's his path. And so they have a system in place. And Boley, being the smartass that he is, he's probably just you know grasping at straws, but he has hired a bunch of guys from there mixed with some of the Brighton holdover guys who came over with Potter. So there is some structure coming together. Chelsea just needs that thing to coalesce they need to get Bowley out of the room, get him away, let the football guys, modern football guys, not, you know, Sam Allardyce, get the modern football structure in place so that they can reset and move forward. They have a lot of players that are good. They have a lot of players who will improve. They have a lot of players who need coaching. They're all really young. They've been put into this institution that's been hollowed out. And nobody seems to know what the fuck is going on, least of all Frank Lampard. You need a real coach who can put processes in place that go beyond just football. It needs to be, what is our food like? What is our, what is our analytic structure? Who reports to who? Like all those pieces of structure need to be put together because Chelsea has been completely hollowed out. been saying that. They have institutional damage and the fans have a memory of an institution that they think structurally exists but it's gone and so you have an empty vessel that's being filled in by the void of Bowley, and he doesn't know what he's doing and i'm sure he'd admit that he doesn't know what he's doing and he's just getting making mistake after mistake after mistake uh i i think we could sort start making the argument that it was a mistake to fire um potter as well because they're still losing and frank lampard still just as clueless as potter looked so um, this was a bad result for Chelsea and they do go, they do host Real Madrid at Stanford bridge. Crazier things have happened, but I don't think Chelsea have scored three goals in a game for, uh, let's see. Um, Chelsea scored three goals, three times this year, once in the champions league in October, against Milan at home. That seems like an outlier. Once against Wolves in October. So those were back-to-back -back games. So that looked good for Potter. And, oh no. Oh no, that was eight. Sorry, I'm reading the dates wrong. That was in... Oh, I, can't, I can't figure this out right now. Why can't I figure this out? Let me see. Uh, and once against Leicester, who can't stop anyone so uh that was in october that uh they scored three against wolves that was in the bruno large era and really they have not scored three goals except three times this year and they've scored two a bunch of times it's mostly ones and zeros <laughs> for um for chelsea however to be fair when they score two they do win they have secretly had a very very good defense and that's only started to slip Lately, giving up four to Brighton was very, very poor and out of character. One thing that I think gets overlooked 
under Potter was that Chelsea didn't give up many goals. Their problem was they couldn't score, but they were at least staying within the principle of holding onto the ball to stop people from scoring. But now they, they're doing neither because Frank Lampard is not a good coach and he doesn't know what he's doing. That's my take. And then Brighton are just flying. And if they hadn't been fucked in the Spurs game, uh, they would be even closer to the chance at being in Europe this season. Okay. Our friends at Manchester United, um, they're in a crisis. And it's not that it's not an Ole crisis. They played Nottingham Forest away. Um, I will admit that I was very concerned for United in this game. Maguire and Lindelof had a start. Uh, Sabitzer got injured in the warm-up, and so Erickson had to come on. Um, it's at the city ground. This is a do-or-die for Nottingham Forest. And United played one of their better games. No Rashford, Martial's in the team. These do have Anthony and Sancho. Anthony was in many games, in part of the goals, created the great pass um, early for the last goal, I think. And then Bruno was fantastic. So this was a good, good, good United performance and really sharp from them. Ten Hag can probably be really happy with this result. Uh, he's a good coach. I think I've sort of said it more than once. I think that Ten Hag has done an incredible job with this United squad because it frankly is not very good. And if you play the XG game, this was one of their more dominant performances of the season. Um, yeah, the the plas the Anthony play was the second goal to uh, Diego Dalla. He played him in. This game was 1-0 for most of the game, and that, they didn't get their second until 76. But they battered uh, uh, Forrest. Forrest didn't really create much at all. Uh, really just had the um, see, six shots, none on target. De Gea didn't have to make a save, and none of the chances they had, their most valuable shot, was one by Onuihi that he hit off the bar, and then Felipe had another one, both uh, on a header late in the game on 76. So here's a team that is about to go underwater, and their best chances at home, and United controlled this game really, really well, especially in the second half. They just completely dominated uh, the play um, and, and created lots and lots of chances. So United have got to feel good. Um, they are going to have to rely on Maguire. Um, and I think that's probably their biggest issue. Uh, they do take the points. They're still focused uh, on their team, on their finishing. They still have a Europa League game at home against the uh, away, sorry, against Sevilla. That they had the game in hand. They're going to have to go and fight and play hard. And teams are going, players are going to have to step up. But one thing I do know is Ten Hag doesn't tend to make the same mistake. Twice. He seems to learn. He seems to keep the team. Like if he tries something and it fails, he'll move away from it. We know about Veghorst. He was using him for a particular reason um, to press and defend. He does now have Casemiro back, which makes the balance and the defense of the team much, much better. Even though Maguire and Lindelof are there, these, that's their third and fourth choice center backs let's be clear and if you remember Luke Shaw was ahead of Maguire so I think he'll 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 keep Wamba Saka in the side with that with Maguire and Lindelof and sacrifice some attacking intent because 
because Wan-Bissaka is such a good defender. Uh, I don't know where he is positionally, but at least we know he's going to defend first and uh, let the ball, let let some of the fluidity go out the window and try and play with Erickson, Bruno, and Casemiro as a three-man midfield, and Martial, who he really loves and is trying to turn him around. I give a lot of credit to Ten Hag. He seems to understand man management, getting guys back on side and all the body language and getting uh, a guy like Martial, who is historically, you know, if he lost the ball, he wouldn't track back and go find it again. But he's got Martial playing for the team and for the unit. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know how he's doing it. He is a good coach. So that I like for United. Uh, and then for the, on the Forest side, just more of the same. They just... They just don't have enough. I don't understand why Jesse Lingard's not playing. Um, they're not scoring from any of their front three, so might as well put Lingard in. He's got experience. He'll try and win something. Froiler has been a bit of a disaster for them. Uh, they let O'Brien go. He's in MLS. He scored a goal. Uh, Emmanuel Dennis comes in late, doesn't really do much. So they have something. Um, it just it looks like it's slipping away for them. Um, if you told me that Cooper got fired, would I be surprised? No, at this point, as much as I like him, um, they got to get to nine wins and it does not look like they're going to get to nine wins, um, for, for Forrest, um, their goal is to stay in this league and they have Liverpool away. That's a loss. Brighton at home. That's a loss. Brighton away, draw, maybe, because Brighton are on the beach. Southampton at home, must win, must win. Chelsea away, draw, that's five points. Arsenal at home, loss. Crystal Palace away, they might be safe, but give them a win. That's eight points. That's eight points. That's going to put them on 35. 35 is not enough. 35 is not enough. They need two wins at least, maybe three. So I worry for Palace. I mean, for, for Forrest. They are in trouble, and Steve Cooper is in trouble for sure. Uh, United are in in that in that top four fight. Um, I don't see them slipping up. You know, they now pulled ahead of Newcastle. They're both on uh, United are on 59 with Newcastle on 36. Tottenham have a game in hand on 53. They probably, they've got a six-point lead on Tottenham. So they're pretty locked in to that top four. So the goal for the season has been reached for United, I'd say. Um, and they can try and they have two paths, right? They have the Europa League as well. So they're in really, really good shape and have a lot to be proud of for their season and have done really, really well. Our next two friends are going to be around um, the Champions League places. And I'm going to talk about my friend Gary O'Neill and Bournemouth taking it to Tottenham Hotspur. What? fucking performance by the great and powerful Bournemouth.
<laughs> uh, I've been talking about it and I kind of knew, I think in my preview that got lost, the lost episode, I talked for quite a bit of time that I thought that Gary O'Neill had a shout at manager of the season and that Tottenham basically just removing Conte from the team so he wouldn't criticize Daniel Levy, but leaving everything that Conte did in place with Stellini is absurd. Um, and Bournemouth, listen, they did what they're supposed to do. They sat deep, they hit on a break, and Dominic Solanke, like I said, is a good player. If you remember him from his early days at, as a Chelsea youth player, then he went on to Liverpool. He had great, great seasons as a youth player. This is a guy with really, really good pedigree. Over 25 goals um, in the championship the season before. Uh, and I think as a youth player, he was youth player of the year. Something crazy, like at Chelsea at 16 years old, uh, won the under-17 World Cup. And and with Bournemouth has been on a, on a steady progressive forward. 15, then 29. And now he's he's got five, five goals this season, but six assists. So he is providing something to the team and 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 doing knockdowns and getting things to Billings and he's been good he's been their best player and he's still just 22 24 years old so he's a striker with a lot of pedigree and we have to remember it's really hard to develop in the Premier League that's why you know when you see a kid who's 17 or 18 they don't make it it's hard to score to learn how to score in the Premier League and now he's coming into his prime. Uh, Solanke has been, he's going to be, he might become someone. He might be a guy that if a team goes down, he'll get bought and moved on. Um, if you remember, uh, he played, you know, so Solanke was with Liverpool, 19 years old, had 21 matches played, about six, um, five starts. You know, he, he did a little something, something. He was with the club and they moved him on to Bournemouth. Uh, you know, this is one of those things where, Liverpool had a bunch of young players that they sold. If you remember uh, the Rion Johnson one, where they got like forty million from fucking Sheffield United. You're like, what the fuck? So this is another one that they sold uh, and did well on the sale to Bournemouth. Um, but you know, Solanke has had a hard time developing in the Premier League. But now that he's in the Premier League, he's playing well and has moved Bournemouth forward along with his partner Billing. And we want to give uh, our guy. Um, Gary O'Neill, a lot of credit. He identified the issues with the team um, that they needed to become a counterattacking team. Both Vigna and Otara, both players who came in the January transfer window and are players who can run and attack on the break. And, you know, you saw Otara's goal in the last minute after Dan Juma in the 88th minute leveled, put, sorry, leveled the game at twos. Um, we saw, you know, our, another late draw from Spurs being the best worst team anyone had ever seen. But Otora just did not let it happen. Coming on in 79, knocked down from Solanke on the break. And then he has the poise to stop, shake, um, shake Perisic, or was it or was it Hoiberg on a cutback, and then calmly slot it into the corner for the win and cue the scenes. <laughs> For the great and powerful Bournemouth. But yeah, Hinman Son got back on the score. Danjuma got some burn and actually got to play. Um, it was a really 
difficult game to see four Spurs just blow it again and again and again. They've really missed Betancourt, I think, is probably the low-key biggest miss for them because he was connecting the team from back to front. Um, and without him, they just don't have any fluidity as they move from defense into attack. They don't have the wing backs to do what they need to do. Perisic has to play, but he gives a lot back in defense, and he's old. And Hoiberg and Skip are destroyers. They are not creative players, and so you're requiring Kane to drop deep so he's not in the box, and the whole thing kind of breaks down. If you remember um, the Kuliszewski, uh, uh, Son, and Kane thing worked because they could all break together, uh, and without Betancourt linking that whole thing together, it doesn't work. Um, there was a sort of dark moment for the great and powerful Davis and Sanchez, who's come to represent what Spurs fans feel is their weakest period. And he represents Levy on the field for a better lack of a better word. So came onto the field, got booed on every touch and eventually was pulled off after 20 minutes. So he was a sub that was subbed and you feel bad for the guy. It's not his fault that the fans have decided that he's their worst player. He just doesn't have a skill set that they're asking him to do. He can't play off from the back. He doesn't have the skills. He's not a champions league level player. And Spurs, who fancy themselves a Champions League-level club, just are not there. And so, um, you know, he came on for Lengley in the first half and then eventually was pulled for Dejuma, who ended up scoring. So that was like a, a Levy-Levy transfer of weirdness. And hopefully, you know, Sanchez can move on and doesn't have to suffer. But for Spurs, it's just like, what the fuck are you guys doing, man? Um, I don't think they're in as bad shape as Chelsea. I think they're one good manager appointment away. Um, but, you know, we still have Levy. We still have the things. I think it needs to be a very clear structure of just like, hey, manager guy, this is where we are. This is what we're doing. Don't ask. This is Spurs. This is how we do shit. And if you just want to coach, put your head down and move forward that way, don't be out here trying to complain. I think the problem that Spurs have is they thought that they were ready to challenge and thought that they were one piece away. That's why you saw Mourinho. That's why you saw Conte. And the fact was they weren't one piece away. They were not ready to go to another level. They weren't one transfer, one defender away. They weren't one great coach away. They're more than one great coach. away. So they need to go back a step so that they can go forward again. Um, Pochettino got them to a certain level. Then they tried to push for those trophies with that trophy-winning coach, quote-unquote, TM. And from there, they've gotten stuck. And now they're kind of, they've got to get out of the pragmatism and back to the hope and back to the dreaminess and back to the progressivism and back to the Spursy, uh, Glenn Hoddley kind of schwab and feeve and go, well, we lost, but we looked great losing. So go back to, to being more swashbuckling and attacking and just be like, you know, we're going to suck anyway. Let's just suck the way we want to suck let's 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 drop back into eighth but score more goals and give up more like stop trying to defend you don't have defenders just just go for it go attack the fans will be fine if it if it's four three and you lose they'll be fine with it they're ready for it uh but i think the key thing is kane if they lose kane they're doomed and then for bournemouth it looks like they're staying up i mean there cannot be another manager that i can think of that has been more maligned. I thought that they would go down. 
I thought that they would go down. I thought that they would go down. They were a team that had locked on to go down, um, but they never did go down. And um, from there, they're just going from strength to strength, as they say, as I use more and more cliches. Uh, they sit in 14th, feeling good. They, they're a long, they're six points away with eight to play, from with seven to play from the drop. So they are in fantastic shape, and they've got to be feeling good. Gary O'Neill for president. Gary O'Neill for president. Um, speaking of people who need to become the president, good evening from Aston Villa. What a performance. They kicked the shit out of Newcastle. Ollie Watkins, offside goal within the first minute. And from there, it just kept on going. Um Aston Villa have a way to play. They have the players to play it. They have all these subtle little things that, that Unai Emery has taught players to be on the half turn, how to do stuff, and sh that improvement showing on the field. Watkins is a player transformed. He's scoring goals for fun. He's now on 14. Buendia, all the things that they're doing are working. Somehow, Ashley Young is starting on a regular basis and not getting exposed. He's 38 years old. What the hell is going on? That's crazy. Uh, but um, I love this team. They're so, so fun with crazy Emmy, Buen <laughs> Emmy Martinez, who we love. So if you remember, or if you're new here, Mike and I really loved Villa under Dean Smith. We had a real crush on them, especially I always had a crush on Jack Grealish, especially in his early days. Uh, I just loved his swagger. I loved his calves. I loved all of it. Uh, and then there was a dour period there where it looked like they'd go down. Then we had the COVID break. Dean Smith rescued them. They had the offside. They had the non-VAR goal against Sheffield United because the cameras broke. That ended up helping them win the stay up by luck. Um, Dean Smith gets the team to be defensive. Then they can him the following season and bring in um, Gerard. And I really believed in Gerard, but the team just went flat. Um, you know, he was like, "Oh, I need this. I need this. I need this." He's very charismatic. He's very persuasive. They did get the players in, but it does not appear that uh, Steven Gerrard is a good coach. Um, sorry. Uh, so uh, you can talk a good game. You can say all the things you want, but ultimately it's about the details. It's about improving players, and that's how you get the buy-in you need. And clearly Unai Emery and his 15 hours of doing video – and staying in the hotel and making guys review videos of plays and how to move and how to do movements and how they're going to play out from the back and how they're going to get their triangles on the wing and how they're going to have Ollie Watkins have his bending runs in between the two defenders. If you notice, it goes through the same channels every single time on the break after they hold the ball on the side and then fling it in there. And so he's just there. He's their goal scorer. He's their leader. And, you know, he committed to Unai Emery, Emery committed to him by moving Ings on and saying, okay, you want to be the man? You're the man now, dog. And we have Ollie Watkins, who never went to a great academy, was at Exeter, was just like a, a, a worker, a guy who pushed himself to be the player that he is and took a securitist route into, um, into top-level um, Premier League status. Ollie Watkins' career started at Exeter City in League Two. And then, of course, our friends from Brentford, 
identified him because that's what Brentford does. And he was in that championship team for three seasons with Dean Smith, that great Brentford team. He's got the 25-goal season. Then he moves on. Ivan Tony takes his place. And um, and Brentford come into the league. And then Watkins moves on to Aston Villa. I had been eyeing him for years. I knew about him because I was following him and following Brentford in the championship. He was good then. He's good now. He never gets injured. I mean, look, he's the last three seasons, he's over 2,500 minutes. Sorry, the last, since he was 20 years old in 2016-17, the guy doesn't miss games. You can put him on a spreadsheet. He's fit. He'll run all fucking day. Uh, I think I said for Arsenal a couple of years ago, I thought they should be, take him as a striker. And maybe that's something that's true. But there's not many players that have had three seasons in a row over 10 league goals in the Premier League. Ollie Watkins is a player. Uh, and if it weren't for this Winter World Cup, he'd be going to the World Cup. Uh, it's just that his form turned once our friend, Mr. Um, Mr. Emery, showed up. Uh, just an incredible, incredible performance for Mr. Um, Mr. Ollie Watkins. And he's just been on fire, scoring goals week on week on week on week. Just a great, great player. Happy to see him just scoring goals week after week. Right foot, header, left foot, just making it happen. I'm very proud of that team. I really love them a lot. Um, but it's been because of Henry. Emery has taken his team and transformed it and made it into who they are. They have a set group. They're not going to stop. They're pushing for Europe for the first time in 25 years. So look out, folks. Aston Villa is on you. Now, they had an opponent. Uh, <laughs> they had an opponent, and their opponent was Newcastle. Uh, Newcastle, just first time in all season that they just weren't at it. They just didn't have it. They got beat by a team that, frankly, was better coached. So that hasn't been able to be said much this often, um, but another opponent, an opponent made Newcastle look bad and took away the things that they wanted to do. So Newcastle got shut out, uh, didn't really create much, and they just got gave up three goals in a game for the first time all season. Best defense in the league, really got ripped apart by Villa. Great performance, uh, you know, just one of these things at Villa Park. Tough for Newcastle. They're still in the top four. They'll probably stay there. They have just as good a shot as Spurs do. But again, Villa is there. What if they keep winning? What if they keep winning? Um, just want to keep on going down the table. Palace, the revival continues. Ebrecha Eze just fucking keeps scoring goals. And maybe it was Zaha the whole time. Maybe there was too much flair. It always did feel like Olise, Eze, and Zaha was too much of the same. And so with Eze pulled out, with, sorry, with Zaha not there, you have Eze and Elise, and you have the two wingers where they should be doing their flicky, tricky things. Eze scores two goals. Palace continues their moves through the top of the league. And I really love Palace. I really love Uncle Roy. I really love his story of where he's going. And they really doom Southampton. Southampton are now for sure going down. They're on 23, four points from safety. You know, not even, they don't really have a sniff of finding a way through. It's really getting dark and scary for Southampton. I think their season is finally, 
we can finally declare their season over. And then the last game that I want to talk about is, um, um, well, I think I'll cover, I'll get to Liverpool next. <laughs> I forgot because they played today and I'm looking through the scores. Uh, Liverpool just d- annihilate Leeds. Let's do a double of the both Merseyside clubs uh, on other sides of two hidings. Uh, Everton at home don't really do much. Fulham spanked them 3-1 and Liverpool go to Ellen Road and drop a six spot on on um on on Leeds. Leeds are just really really bad. Uh the second half of that game for Liverpool Trent Alexander-Arnold bossing the whole thing from the midfield. He stepped in and they sort of finally caught on that maybe he should do some different things rather than trying to stay in that wing back area and like not and get pushed back, maybe try and move around. Come on, Klopp, be creative. Uh, maybe they're going to try and create their own Bellingham and make Trent Alexander-Arnold a midfielder. But these two teams going in different directions. Everton sitting above the drop on goal difference alone. Goal difference alone. They have a 10-goal difference from Nottingham Forest. But if Leicester win a game, they'll be in the, the zone. If Nottingham Forest win a game, Everton will be in the, the relegation zone. Leeds have a little bit of a cushion on 29, but it, like I said, that was nine wins. Got to get to nine. Um, not Everton are on six. Nine will really make them safe. Uh, but they're running out of games and running out of time, and I'm worried for Everton now. They really had two bad performances in a row. Uh, Fulham at home were there for the taking, but they just can't defend. Michael Keane cannot play defense at all. And for Liverpool, they're too far away. Are they too far away from the top, from Europe? They're not too far away. They could still get to Europe, but do they want to? Do they want to get to Europe? Does Liverpool want the European football? They probably just need to win out if they really want to do it. Uh, if they win out, hey, listen, stranger things have happened. Allison scored a goal on a header to put them into Europe. But this this stretch that they went through, losing to Bournemouth, was the was the killer the draw against Chelsea also a killer considering how fucking terrible Chelsea have been they were good in that game that was the um the Bruno game and then Lampard took over Chelsea should have won that game but um yeah I just can't I can't make heads or tails of Liverpool like they have they have four wins this season sorry I'll leave out the Rangers game they have 9-0 9-0 versus Bournemouth early in the season. 7-0 versus United, and now 6-1 versus Leeds. Those games, that's 9-16-24. 24 goals in those games. And I don't think they have 50 goals this season. So, yeah, they have 56 goals. Almost half their goals come from those three games. So you can get a sense of how inconsistent Liverpool have been this season. Um, it does help them to get off the schneid, but these false dawns have been coming, and I'm not interested in another false dawn from Liverpool. They'll probably play next week and lose. <laughs> I can't make heads or tails of Liverpool. And then um, Leeds, again, in trouble. There'll be other games, but the last two games from Leeds, Javi Gracia's magic has worn off. They've given up five goals and five goals, so five to Crystal Palace. Five to Liverpool, six to Liverpool, not great. Setting a record for goals, worst loss at home uh, by by Leeds in history, not 
good at all. Just disastrous stuff. Uh, I do want to go through, as I bop around between this Everton Merseyside scene that I'm looking through, let's look at wh what games um, Everton have left to see if they can get to nine wins. They are on six, and they have Newcastle at home, mm -hmm. Manchester City at home, mm -hmm. Bournemouth at home. They got to win that Bournemouth game last game of the season. Wolves away, Leicester away, Crystal Palace away next week. They've got to find a way to get their, their away form back in action. It feels like the the draws, the three draws and the win that they had versus Brentford seem very, very far away. Uh, the win against Arsenal seems a million years ago. They've got to find a way uh, to get points on the board. Anything, draws, scratch, claw, whatever. Don't play Michael Keane. I keep telling this man, Michael Keane cannot be playing for this team. Uh, also, I don't think they had Decore, which always, they're not deep enough to be missing players uh, for Everton. So um, tough game. You'd have thought they'd have got a draw against Fulham, but they got beat pretty pretty handily. Um, nice, nice goal from Dwight McNeil, who's been one of their better players all season. But they had to go back to the 4-4-2. James Garner, a, a young player, got the start in midfield. But please, for the love of God, please play Connor Cody and get Godfrey to add a fullback. Uh, they need Seamus Coleman to come back much, much sooner or later. This team's not good enough to have other players playing in weird places that they cannot play. Okay, let us do some checking up quickly. What's coming up before the next show? We'll have seen Chelsea play Real Madrid, Napoli play Milan, Bayern Munich versus City with their three-goal lead, and Interverse Benfica. So Thursday, we'll be talking about the Champions League results. Uh, that should be amazing. Um, and then we'll start getting into the match week and the FA Cup quarterfinals where Brighton play United, which could be fantastic, and City play Sheffield. Um, those are our semifinals. So it looks like we're, we, could, we could be on point for a Manchester FA Cup final. Could be a Manchester United trying to stop City from winning the treble. Could be good. Could be good. Let's just go to the table and then we'll wrap the show up. Arsenal in first on 74. City chasing them on 30 games on 70 points with a game in hand. It's all going to come down to next Wednesday at the Etihad. City have two games in between. Uh, United on 59 comfortably in third. Newcastle in fourth on 56. Spurs somehow inexplicably handing on to Europe on 53. But the great and powerful Aston Villa are right behind them. One game behind them. Unreal in sixth on 50. Then Brighton, Liverpool, uh, and Brentford. Brighton and Liverpool are together, 49 and 47, respectively. Brighton have two games in hand. Brentford slipping, have not one in five, are on 43 in ninth with their friends Fulham on 42. Then in 11th, Chelsea, just brutal, uh, with Crystal Palace behind them on 36. Then we have Wolves, Bournemouth, like I said, safe. And West Ham take their point. They feel great about that point uh, on 31 and 15th. Leeds on 29 in 16th. Everton on 17, just above the drop on goal difference with Nottingham Forest, Leicester, and Southampton making up the bottom three. Clearly, Southampton cut adrift. The relegation battle is looking more and more like Leeds. 
two between Leeds, Everton, Forest, and Leicester. Some big, big name clubs that are not going to be with us next season. Petrifying, scary, and sad. Okay. Um, I'm going to say goodbye. That was the Squeaky Bum Time podcast with Laurent Cortines. We are the football wing of the Chop Sports channel and presented it exclusively by the Premier Streaming Network. We record on Mondays and Thursdays. Show, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you're listening on Apple, please rate and review the show because it's very, 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 